Good morning. So this is week four of our Advent series. And historically, Advent was six or seven weeks long, which is why it's just after Thanksgiving and we're already in the middle of it. So if you haven't been here, you can always go back and listen online because you are late to Advent this year. Or maybe we're early, I don't know. We've been using Ephesians 6 to guide us, which is where Paul talks about how our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, but it's against the powers of this dark world. So in this Advent series, we've been looking at a different power of this dark world each week. And we started out looking at one that we as Christians can actively battle against in our lives. So this was the power of wealth. It was um, all about the allure of wealth and all the trouble that it can bring the economic disparity um, that we see in our world. So that was the first power we talked about. And then last week, we talked about a different kind of power. We talked about the power of death and tragedy. And so this was one that we don't actively battle against in the same way. We can't do anything to avoid experiencing it, but it's a power that when we do experience it in our lives, um, then there's things we can do as a response. Um, but it's mostly about the waiting and the longing for Jesus to come back. And that's really the heart of Advent. It's this season of waiting. And we've maybe seen it in the past, um, just in our lives as waiting for Christmas, waiting for Jesus's first coming. Um, but in this historical approach to Advent, we see that really it's more about waiting and longing for Jesus's second coming and how we're living in this time in between. So we look back and see God's faithfulness in keeping his promise to send Jesus the first time, and then that's why we have a deep-rooted hope to look ahead and to trust God that he's going to come back and make all things new and conquer all the powers of this dark world once and for all. So death and tragedy, we focused really on that aspect. Now the power we're focusing on this week is more in the first camp. It's something that we can actively battle, and there's actually a lot we can do to fight against this power that we're talking about today. This power we're talking about today is a tool that the enemy uses to enslave us. It's something that we think Satan uses to try and destroy us, but we don't usually see it that way. The power we're talking about today is one that I think most of us just see as normal. It's just the way things are. We don't think that much about it. We just kind of live our lives and it's even considered a good thing in our culture. But today we're gonna challenge that perspective and say actually we think this is a power of this dark world that brings a lot of harm. And the power we're talking about today is busyness. So I bet some of you just thought, oh, is that all? <laughs> That's not so bad. I'd rather hear about that than death and tragedy. <laughs> like, <laughs> glad I wasn't here last week. Yeah, it doesn't seem so bad. Or maybe your gut reaction is, oh, Okay, here we go again, like talking about busyness, but I know I'm too busy, I get it. I'm, yeah, I'm probably too busy sometimes, but that's just life. I'm managing it, it's okay. Life will slow down eventually one day. There's nothing I can really do about this. So you're already kind of checking out. So before you tune me out completely, let me just say this. I think the danger with this power is that when we're so busy, we don't even realize that we're in a war. We don't even realize that our very souls are being drained. We don't realize that we're unable to live the lives God has for us because we're too busy. So if you've already begun to dismiss me, can you do something? Can you just agree to suspend your disbelief or even your discouragement or defeat in this area just for 30 minutes, just for the next half hour, 
suspend your disbelief and pretend like maybe busyness is a power of this dark world, maybe it is something we need to fight against, and maybe there's actually some things we could do about it and some things we might need to change in our lives. Can you do that? Thanks, okay. Busyness, this is something we talk a lot about at New Denver, but I promise you one thing, once it stops being a struggle for us, we'll stop talking about it. <laughs> I promise, I promise. When I ask you how you're doing, if you respond, man, I feel so at peace. My life is good. I have capacity and margin. I'm loving others really well. I'm hearing God's voice and responding to what he has for me. Ah, I'm good. Then we will stop talking about busyness. But when I ask you how you are, most of you say, I'm keeping busy, and I think that's actually a problem. And the truth is, you probably don't need a pastor to tell you you're too busy. Social science tells us this. We know busyness impacts our mental health and causes unnecessary stress and anxiety. We know it impacts our physical health and causes muscle tension, restlessness, insomnia, fatigue, so many other things. It impacts our relationships and leaves us feeling lonely and detached from others and lacking the meaningful connections that we need. And these are all things the enemy loves to use to keep us down and to keep us not flourishing. And we sense within us that this is the case, too. We know when we're too busy, when we're stressed out, scattered, running from place to place, but we feel aimless. We're working all day long, but we feel like we didn't get enough done. It's that fast pace of life that isn't pleasant or sustainable. And in moments of clarity, we sense that something's wrong in our souls, that this isn't what God intended for life to be like. But we're trapped in this cycle, and we don't know how to get out of it. And we're enslaved to these cultural rhythms that, that just feel so normal. They produce exhaustion and anxiety, but we see everyone else doing the same things too, so we think it must be okay, or we blame ourselves for our, our inadequacy and that we can't handle it all, and then we just double down and keep going. The trouble with busyness is the busier we get, the less capacity we have to love really well. And you know the feeling when you're stressed out running from thing to thing and something doesn't go our way or an interruption arises, our blood starts to boil. We get angry and impatient and we snap. For example, on Monday, I was working from home. I was trying to just fit one more thing into an already busy schedule and I needed to get out the door. My daughter Eva had a doctor's appointment and so I'm sitting on the couch just trying to type a few more things on my laptop and She's standing at the edge of the couch trying to touch all the keys, and I was like, no, stop. You can't type. You don't know how. Go away. Like, I just need one minute, and then we have to go. And so I finish up what I'm doing. I put on my shoes. I get her in the car seat, and I realize she's probably super hungry. So then I leave her sitting in the car seat by the door. I run into the kitchen, make her a bottle, come back. I'm awkwardly squatting, feeding her the bottle. She has to chug down the whole thing, and then we need to head out the door to get to the doctor on time. Do you guys know this feeling? I mean, the situation might be different in your home, but that, that irritation you get when something is just not going your way, you're trying to squeeze too much in to too little time, and then you get frustrated, and you start lashing out on the people around you. I had to pause and apologize to my one-year-old before we left our house. None of this was her fault. She didn't make me late. She didn't make me try to get one more thing done with work before we left. And when she came up to me, she was probably thinking, oh, Mom, hello, remember me? I'm a little hungry here. Haven't fed me in hours. 
the worst part of the story is the work I was trying to get done was starting to prepare for this sermon. So I am definitely not preaching from a place of having this unlocked today. I'm preaching to myself too. When we're too busy, we're impatient. We're not kind. We're selfish. We're easily angered. We're basically the opposite of how Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. You all know this one. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Or how about this one? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How much joy do we have when we're too busy? How much peace? How much gentleness? The busier we are, the smaller our capacity to love is. It's like our heart shrinks up when we're too busy. We're too busy to see the needs around us, too busy to welcome interruptions to help people. People become inconveniences standing between us and our to-do lists. We get too busy to even love ourselves well or attend to our own needs. And we definitely get too busy to love God or give him any of the time or attention that he deserves. When we're busy, we're living with our heads down. We're focused on putting one foot in front of the other. We don't have the margin to look up, to look around, to be present to what God is doing, to be present to others and even to our own hearts. Doesn't that sound a whole lot more like how Satan would want us to live than how God would want us to live? Busyness is not flourishing. It shouldn't be a badge of honor. In our culture, when people ask us how we are and we say we're keeping busy, we say it like it's a good thing, but it's not. When the next time you ask someone how, how they're doing, they say they're busy, I, I would just love for one of you to reply, oh, I'm so sorry, that sucks. What are you doing to change that? It, it sounds crazy to even consider replying in this way, but isn't it more accurate? We were not created to be busy. We were created to flourish. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that you can have life, have it to the full. God wants us to thrive, and the way to thrive is not through busyness. Busyness is a trap of the enemy to keep our heads down and our focus on all the little things that don't really matter. It's a tool of Satan to enslave us and make us the worst version of ourselves. Busyness keeps us from being the loving, flourishing people that God's created us to be. Are you starting to see how this is a problem? We can't be the people God's created us to be when we're too busy. We can't really follow the ways of Jesus when we're too busy. Jesus wasn't too busy. He absolutely could have been. We would have understood it if he was, but he wasn't. He had so many people placing demands and expectations on him. But I challenge you, read through the four Gospels in the Bible where we, we read about Jesus' life. He wasn't stressed out and frazzled and overwhelmed. He lived slowly and intentionally. His heart didn't shrink up. He didn't cave in to everyone else's demands. Think about this. He could have healed more people than he did. Doesn't that seem just wrong through our cultural lens? I think we could read scripture and look at Jesus' life and and say, you could have done more. You could have packed more in. You could have just healed a few more people. But he didn't. 
He only listened to God's expectations and did what God set out for him to do. And he was at peace and had the capacity to love others well. I want to offer hope today that actually busyness is not okay. It's not normal or expected or just the way things are, and it definitely isn't good. And even if our culture thinks it is, and even if our culture thinks it's the only way, I, I want to offer hope that it's not, that there's another way, a better way, and that as followers of Jesus, we're called to live in this different way. Let's jump into our passage for today. It's Ephesians 5, 8 through 17. So this is the chapter right before Paul talks about our struggle against the powers of this dark world. This is what he writes. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul's contrasting his readers' lives before they knew Jesus to their lives now after they have begun following Jesus. And he uses the metaphor of dark and light. So he says, before they knew Jesus, their lives were full of darkness. They were slaves to the powers of this dark world. But now that they know Jesus and are following him, they've come into the light. So he says, wake up. You're asleep. You can't live in the same ways that you used to. He tells them to live wisely making the most of every opportunity, or another translation says, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. The world is still dark. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul says that a key to wise living in a dark world is to make the best use of our time. We don't typically live in a way that's making the best use of our time. More often than not, we fall into the trap of the tyranny of the urgent, which was an idea that Charles Hummel introduced in 1967, and others like Stephen Covey have built on this idea. I have a diagram um, that I think can be helpful. So there are four quadrants, and all of the things we do that fill our time fit in one of these four quadrants, and everything is rated on two things. Is it urgent and is it important? So I'll start in the top right. Some things are both urgent and important. When they come up, we have to take care of them right away. It's important that we do. And then moving clockwise down to the bottom right, other things are urgent but not important. So we have to do them right away, but they don't really make that big of a difference in the long run. The bottom left is the not urgent and not important. So these are the things on the back burner. We think maybe we'll get to them someday, but it's probably okay if we don't. They aren't that important and they're really never urgent. And then the last quadrant, the top left, is the not urgent but important. So these are the things we know we should do, but it's hard to make time for them. We think they're really important, but they're never urgent, they're never pressing, they're never top of our to-do list, so they kind of get put on the back burner as well. Now, I want to do something kind of different. I want to go back through each quadrant, but this time I want you guys to shout out examples of things that we do commonly that fit in each quadrant. So I know I'm asking you to be brave and to participate. Can you do that? Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. Urgent and important. What are some things you do pretty regularly that are both urgent and important? Feeding your baby. Go to the bathroom. 
sleep? Shipping documents, yeah. Students, what about you? What's the first thing you do in the morning? Because it's so important and urgent. Go to school. <laughs> Breakfast, yeah, that's a good one. Brush your teeth. Dan, we know you don't do that. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Okay, all right, those are urgent and important. Um, what about the next one? Urgent but not important. What things fit here? Brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth. <laughs> what else? What else? Checking your phone. Yeah, I think phone, email, I mean, that's a big one in here. We get notifications and it seems so urgent and then we check it and it's like 20% off, cool, like I don't care, I'm not gonna go there. It's usually never important. What about not urgent and not important? IRS. IRS, <laughs> paying my taxes. <laughs> Some things are like not urgent until they are, you know? Yeah, in my house, this is a lot of our chores. It's like making the bed. It's not it's not that important. It just won't get done. And it's probably okay that it doesn't. School. Okay, <laughs> moving on. And <laughs> finally, not urgent, but important. Calling your parents. Spending time with family. Cleaning. Yeah. Taking, yeah, taking care of yourself, exercise, reading the Bible. There's so many things that fit in this category that we know we should do. We think life would be better if we did it, but it, it is so hard to make the time. The trouble with the tyranny of the urgent is that we spend our time mostly doing the things that are urgent, even if they're not the things that are the most important. And the trap of busyness isn't necessarily that any of the things we're doing are bad. They might all be good things, but they begin to crowd out other, more important things that we could be doing. We end up filling our time with the things that seem urgent, but really aren't that important, and we neglect the things that are really important, but just never seem urgent enough to do. And if we're honest, that's not the best use of our time. The world won't fall apart if you don't respond to that text or email right away. Your family might fall apart if you don't spend time with them on a regular basis. We need to rethink how to prioritize the things that are important, and we need to decide what's actually urgent and what's just pretending to be urgent. So what do we do? How do we make the best use of our time? How do we not live in a way that's foolish but understand what the Lord's will is when it comes to stewarding the time that he's given us? I have two suggestions for how we can begin to battle busyness in our lives. And the first one is this. Embrace a weekly Sabbath. We always say this. This is the number one solution we always give when we talk to you about busyness. Sabbath is taking a day a week to rest and to reorient on what's most important, which is God. We can stop working for a day a week and the world won't fall apart. Sabbath is about acknowledging we're not God. We're not that important. And this is a command in scripture. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. So it was a big deal. It was right up there with not murdering or lying or stealing or committing adultery. But more than it being a command, it's a gift. It's probably the greatest gift God could have possibly given us. To recognize that we're frail and that we need rest is so gracious. God's not a slave driver or a taskmaster. He models rest for us and then he invites us into it. And he set the world up this way from the very beginning. In Genesis, we read about the creation of the world, and the author leaves us with a ton of questions about when and how this process happened. But one thing is really clear. God sets up this pattern so clearly for us that he works, and then he rests. 
And he doesn't need to rest. He isn't tired. He's God. He does this for us. He does it as a model for us of how he wants us to live. We work six days, and then we rest. So that's the first challenge, embrace a weekly Sabbath. And like I said, we talk about this a lot at New Denver, so we've preached whole messages on this before, and I know some of you are new, and maybe you haven't been here when we've talked about it, but you can go to newdenver.org, and at the top right, there's a search bar. Just type in Sabbath, and a bunch of messages will come up, so you can listen to those later. Or talk to one of us pastors if this is a practice that you want to embrace, but you just don't know how or where to start or what this could look like in your life and with your schedule and your responsibilities. We would love to just brainstorm with you what this could look like. There's a ton of books on this topic as well. If you're a reader and this is something you would enjoy looking into more. I will say there are some different views on how strict the modern Sabbath ought to be, and we've adopted a really simple approach here. So one time I preached on Sabbath, and I said it basically boils down to two things, pray and play. So pray is the first one, meaning spend time with God. And that doesn't have to be on your knees, in your room, praying by yourself. It could be. Um, it's really just about spending time with God in whatever way you best connect with him. So it could be getting up into the mountains and spending time with God there, or maybe journaling for 30 minutes and writing out your prayers to God, or taking a walk through your neighborhood and pouring out your heart to God and listening for his voice, or maybe just reading scripture for an extended period of time and hearing what he says that way. If your Sabbath is on Sundays, coming to church will likely be a part of that as well. So pray and then play. Do things that are life-giving. Spend time with people who are life-giving. Don't do any work. Don't check any emails. Unplug from the things that seem urgent but really aren't. And spend time doing the things that are way more important and more filling to your soul. So cook, create art, take a nap, play a game with your kids, go on a date with your spouse, hang out with friends. Just have fun. Sabbath is a gift, and it's meant to be fun and restful. It's one day a week that we look forward to so much as we work the other six days. And I do mean work six days. I know most of us have a five-day work week, but the sixth day is the day to do errands and laundry and all those things you have to do to keep life going. We do those things on the sixth day, so the seventh day really is a day of rest, a day to pray and play, a day to slow down and spend time with God and your favorite people, and do your favorite things, and eat your favorite things, and go to your favorite places. It's like a mini vacation one day a week. Sabbath is the best. Why would we refuse this or give it up? It's supposed to be the best part of our week and this time that we look forward to, and so much of our time we just skip it. It's like we say, thanks, God, but no thanks. I'd rather check emails and do laundry. Our culture is so strange. We totally reject this gift that God is giving us because we're too busy. We fill our time with other things. We think we have so much better stuff to do. I think Paul would say, you're foolish. That's not wise living. That's just dumb. Understand what the Lord's will is. Make the best use of your time. And that starts with embracing Sabbath. Sabbath isn't in your face to the enemy. It's saying, Satan, I'm not falling for the trap of busyness anymore. It always overpromises and underdelivers, and I'm not buying it. I want to live God's way and use my time in the ways he thinks are best. And he thinks Sabbath is really important and that it's a gift to me, and I'm going to accept that. I'm going to start living in this new way and in this new rhythm of six days of work, one day of rest. Take that, sucker bunch. Battling busyness. <laughs> okay. The second way we can battle busyness is to create a rule of life. 
Now, how many of you have ever created a rule of life before? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five. So like six people, cool. How many of you have ever heard of a rule of life? A few more, awesome. So most of you have not. Here's what a rule of life is. It is an ancient practice that was started by Benedictine monks a long time ago, and I didn't discover it until seminary, but it's really not something that's just for monks and seminary students in the White Hills. It <laughs> is a way to pause and get out of the flow of our busyness and take a 30,000-foot view and inventory of our lives. And we've already acknowledged how we typically spend our time when we looked through the four quadrants, but this is less about acknowledging what's currently happening and more about outlining what should be happening. So it's the difference between simply tracking cash flow and actually setting a budget. Creating a rule of life is like making a budget for your time that it's, that's in line with the things that you really value. So it's getting at the heart of figuring out what's really important to me and then deciding how am I actually going to make a plan or a rough system of, of how to actually put those things in my schedule and make time for them. So just like money, time is a precious resource God has given us to steward well. He cares about how we use our time. And when we create a rule of life, we're saying, this is important to me, I'm going to make time to actually do them, and that's a way to fight against the tyranny of the urgent. I'm gonna give some instructions um, about what this could look like, and then I'm, I'm actually gonna give us some time right now to begin creating your own. So if you did not get one of these handouts when you came in, raise your hand, and the host team members have some extras that they will pass out. So everyone is going to need one of these. Uh, I see a hand over here. Awesome, so yes, make sure that you have one of those. You can pull it out. I'm gonna describe it a little bit more before we actually get going. So the end of this passage that we looked at earlier, Ephesians 5:17 says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I think Jesus gives us a great answer to the question, what is God's will, or what does God desire of me? It's at the top of your handout. It's Matthew 22, 35 to 40. One of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So a rule of life can be organized in a million different ways. There's a ton of different formats you can use, but I found these three categories of loving God, loving others, and loving self to be a simple and helpful way for me to think about this when I've created my own rule of life. Jesus tells us that it's God's will for us to love God above all else, love others, and then his command to love our neighbor as ourself implies that we're loving ourselves well, or he wouldn't ask us to love others in that same way. So within each category, I give some subcategories for you to think through, but these are not exhaustive. Um, this is just to get the wheels turning. So for the loving God category, I listed New Denver's five core values, scripture, mission, community, practices, and presence. We think these are five big areas God uses to grow us in our faith and ways that we can honor God, but there could be other things that you think through in that category. For loving others, I listed a few key relationships or groups of people, so spouse if applicable, kids if applicable, extended family, friends, and neighbors or coworkers, but again, not exhaustive. You'll need to specifically think about who's important in your life that you would include. And then for loving self, a few broad subcategories were uh, physical health, mental and emotional health, work or vocation, rest or Sabbath, and hobbies or fun. But again, there's others you can think through. So underneath each category, I left some, some space for you to write out 
some commitments, and you can have more than five per category. You can have as many as you want. There's room on the back. You can flip it over and write some more. The important thing about writing commitments is that you define both what you're going to do and when or how often you'll do it. The more specific, the better. So an example, if I'm looking at the first category, loving God, the first subcategory, scripture, I might make a commitment like, I commit to reading my Bible for five to 10 minutes every day. Or I commit to following a Bible reading plan and reading the whole Bible in one year. Or I don't know a whole lot about the Bible and I want to learn more, so I commit to finding a mentor and we'll meet together once a week and go through a book of the Bible starting in January. This is just a time to brainstorm and think of what a commitment could be in your life if this is a value for you, and then you'll hash out the details and make a more specific plan later. So a couple disclaimers before I set you loose to work on this. One, I don't know what your values are, and maybe for you, scripture isn't a value at all. Uh, we're all at different places on our spiritual journeys, and I really want to honor that. So feel free to tweak these categories and subcategories as much as you want. Uh, make this a representation of your life and your values, not mine. This is just a place to start if it's helpful. Second disclaimer is not all your commitments should be new. I'm not under the impression that we're spending none of our time in line with the things we say we value. I'm actually assuming the opposite, that we're probably doing quite a few things already that would fit. Um, so if you have things you're already doing, write those down. I would say probably 80% of your commitments should be things you're already doing that are living in line with your values. And then if you notice big areas as you look through this list or think of other things, um, if you notice big areas where there's dissonance in what you say you value and what your schedule says you value, then maybe make a commitment around that. Maybe create a few new commitments as you go along of things you'd like to begin incorporating in this season. And I get that this can feel really overwhelming or make us feel like we aren't doing enough. I think some of that can be a healthy wake-up call. Maybe our lives aren't in line with our values as much as we would like them to be. Maybe the way we're spending our time is on the things that are urgent or just seem pressing, but they're really not the important things we would say we value. So hopefully there's a little bit of a correction in that. This Advent series is all about waking up to the battles that we're in and starting to fight. But I want to communicate that there's grace, that we aren't perfect, we aren't going to be able to have time to do everything we would love to do. Just like when we're sitting down and making a budget for our money, we, we often don't have the money to do everything we would love to do. So the beauty in creating a rule of life is it's recognizing our limited time and energy and saying, these are the things I'm committing to for right now. And there's other things I would love to be able to commit to and things I think are good, but I'll have to wait and commit to those in a, a different season when I have a different capacity to do it. Okay. I'm going to pause right there and give you five minutes to work on this. Go. I know that wasn't a ton of time, and it really does take more than five minutes to create a whole rule of life, but at least you're starting to think about this process, and I hope it's something that you take and you continue at home, um, maybe sometime this week or in the next couple weeks. I have a couple of tips for you, now that you've at least gotten a start on creating a rule of life. So the first is this. If you're married, you and your spouse are going to need to come together sometime soon to go through your rules of life together. And the reason for this is you'll need to find areas where you maybe differ, where you need to come into alignment. So for example, if one of you writes, I really value serving the underserved in our city, and it's something I want our family to do once a month, 
And for the other one, that's not a value, or it is, but every six months or every year would be good. That's an area where you will have to find a, a common solution of what you guys will do. So that's the first tip. If you're married, talk about this together. And you'll have some accountability, too. Even if you're not married, sharing this with a friend and asking them to hold you accountable in these commitments that you've made is a great idea. So that's number one. Second thing is this. A rule of night level. A rule of life is not something that you create once and then forget about. Um, this is something where you'll have to check in every, at least every six months or a year and see how you're doing, see how you're doing living in light of your values and, and make tweaks, see what commitments aren't working or aren't relevant anymore and make some new ones. So this isn't a static document, it's a dynamic process. So set a reminder in your calendar for six months from now to do a check-in on your rule of life. And then third is that you won't be able to just add more to your busy schedule. Saying yes to the things that are important but not urgent will mean cutting out other things and saying no to some things that you're currently doing. So think about things that you might stop doing or quit doing. And the end of the year is a really great time to quit things. I think sometimes we need permission from other people to quit doing things that are good, um, but maybe not the most important in that season. So I give you permission. Right now, you have permission to quit doing the things that are good, but are keeping you from doing the things that are more important. Making the best use of our time means being intentional about what we say yes and what we say no to. It's identifying our values and living in line with them. It's doing the things that we think are important, not just the things that seem urgent in the moment. And two ways we can begin battling busyness in our lives are one, embrace a weekly Sabbath, a day to pray and play, and two, create and begin living out the rule of life. Busyness is a power of the dark world. It's a tool that the enemy used to keep us enslaved and focused on all the things that don't really matter and keep us anxious and stressed and not flourishing. We can't be the people God's created us to be when we're too busy. God is honored when we use our time in a way that is intentional. And he's made his will clear for us. He wants us to love him above all else and love others as we love ourselves. Let's pray and ask for his help in doing just that. God, we confess that we're too busy. We haven't even realized that we're in a battle against this or that the enemy is using our busyness to drain our souls. We want to take steps to fight, but we need your help. We can't do this on our own. Show us how to prioritize the things that matter most. Give us the wisdom and courage we need to make real changes in how we spend our time so we can better honor you and be the people you've created us to be. Give us glimpses now of what it means to truly rest, even as we wait and long for you to come back and invite us into your perfect rest, into rhythms of unhurried life with you forever. We are so excited for that day. In Jesus' name we pray.